Hi everyone and welcome to the Curve Mindset Podcast. Today we're joined by Tony Elliott. Tony is an ex-pro who loves futsal. We talked about his coaching journey, how futsal influences him and how family has such a big impact in his life. Again, any questions, tweet us at the Curve Mindset or email us at thecurvemindset at gmail.com. Thanks and enjoy. Hi everyone and welcome to the Curve Mindset Podcast. Today we're joined by Tony Elliott. How are, how are you, Tony? Yeah, not too bad, mate. You can probably hear I'm a, I'm a little bit croaky at the minute. I've, uh, I've recently been away with the England blind squad to Japan and uh, I think I've picked something up on the return journey, possibly off the uh, the plane. So apart from having a bit of a croak and uh, a bit of a sore chest, uh, you know, other than that, I'm okay. So ready to rock and roll. Excellent. Uh, hopefully it's only... Your voice will last uh, for the podcast, but again, you've got a go-keeping voice, so therefore it yeah. always lasts. Um, no problem, can, can you just uh, tell the listeners just a wee bit of background about yourself? Yeah, well, obviously, uh, you know, I, I come from a, a football background, um, started playing from a very early age, from probably the age of six or seven. Um, my father was sort of heavily involved in, in amateur football, men's, really men's teams, so I was kind of bought up around that that culture in the the mid to late seventies, so um, there was no messing about in them days. And uh, you know what we know as safeguarding and, and player welfare now, um, <laughs> there was none of that in them days. So it was a bit rough and tumble, and it kind of gave me a great grounding. So um, I was brought up in a, in a football environment, football family, um, staunch Birmingham City fans for our sins. So we had uh, season tickets um, down the Blues, as they're known, and. Uh, that gave me a great chance to, to sort of see some of the, the fantastic players of the 70s and, and, and the 80s, you know. So for me, I think the, the, the link to goalkeeping um, came very quickly. Um, we, you know, our season tickets were literally right behind the goal at one end. So um, I had fantastic exposure to, you know, some wonderful goalkeepers during that period and, you know, the likes of, uh, Pete Schilt and Ray Clements, Joe Corrigan, um, Jimmy Rimmer, um, you know, Alex Stepney, and then obviously moving forward, you know, the likes of Gary Bailey, Neville South, or Bruce Grobelar, you know, I can reel them off. And, um, you know, every other week I was I was getting the chance to not just see them, but to hear these guys, you know, on, on the field of play. And, um, you know, that really uh, sort of pushed me on to sort of being excited about probably you know wanting to be a goalkeeper rather than any other any other position on the pitch although when I first started playing I did play a little bit of outfield I, I like to think uh, or consider myself as a bit of a winger um, but I ended up going in goal when I was at school and uh, and it stuck so um, that's where it all started really I, I guess that's what you're kind of after but then you know once I got to sort of my early teens that's when things really started to evolve and develop and I became a more of an athlete rather than a, a chunky little kid, which is what I was. Um, you know, I literally was the fat kid that went in goal, you know. Um, but uh, I had a growth spurt when I was about 12 years old and um, ended up becoming more of an athlete. Got, got 
quite tall, you know, I, I probably gained most of my height that I am now, so I'm around six foot, and I got to about that when I was about 14, 15. Um, and, and that's when, you know, I started getting noticed when I was in my early teens, and uh, getting selected for the national school, I, going through trials was a massive, massive plus for me, you know, I was one of the first ever in that group at, at Lillyshaw in, in 1984. Um, and for those people that, that aren't aware of the FA National School, it was the brainchild of of uh, Bobby Robson and, and Sir Charles Hughes um, back in the 80s. It was it was kind of the prelude, I think, to the, the modern academy um, where we literally went to uh, live away from home at the age of 14. Um, we spent two years at Lillyshaw uh, in a national academy. There was 25 of us and I was one of the best two goalkeepers in the country at that time. So, um, you know, that, that literally is where it, where it all started. Um, you know, represented England from the age of about 14 all the way up to about 20. Um, and then uh, started my professional life when I left the national school. So, in a nutshell, that's a little bit about it. That's my background. So, it's purely football. Uh, grew up in a football family. Um, and, that, and that that was my grounding. And um, obviously, I guess you could say I was born with a gift and I used that to to the full extent and, and, and had a right go and got to be a professional, you know. Yeah, and um, in hearing your voice, you're always inspiring people. But um, you play for your local club, uh, Carlisle. What's the kind of mindset um, when playing for the, your kind of local club? Is it more pressure or pride or is it both? Yeah, yeah, well, look, and I have to tell you, and you might want to edit this, but my local club was Birmingham. Oh, sorry. So, yeah, that's cool. So, obviously, I was brought up you know, with, with, with Birmingham City and uh, my dream was to was to play for Birmingham, um, you know, and, and at that time, obviously, going to the national school, um, there was a lot of clubs um, trying to get my signature. So, you know, during the process, you know, I turned down such clubs as, as Aston Villa, as Man United, as Tottenham, as Nottingham Forest. Um, and ultimately, all I ever wanted to do was put, put the shirt on at Birmingham City and um, luckily enough I was I was able to do that not not probably anywhere near enough as I wanted um, but I did uh, when I left the national school I ended up signing professional forms for Birmingham um, and yeah I think I think there was pressure I think because obviously all my family were Birmingham fans I think if I'd have signed for Aston Villa they'd have never forgiven me <laughs> I probably would never been able to walk through their doors ever again Um but it was no coincidence, anyway. I think it was written, really, that, uh, you know, I was born on St Andrew's Day on November 30th, so I know you'll enjoy that. And I ended up playing for Birmingham City, whose home ground, of course, is St Andrews. Um, so whether that, that has anything to do with it, I know, you know, when things are written, they're written, you know. Uh, but lo and behold, my, my professional debut was a local derby against Aston Villa, which I believe. So um, it was a League Cup tie. I found out about... Two hours before kickoff that I was playing, there was a bit of a mix-up with um, what was happening with the first-choice goalkeeper, Martin Thomas, at the time. and Ultimately, he was on loan. Newcastle wouldn't let him play, so I got a phone call. I was sitting at home having my dinner. Um, get your backside down to Villa Park. You're playing tonight, mate, at 17 years old. Um, and that was it. So, very little preparation. Um, the outcome wasn't great. We got beat 5-0 on the night. Um, you know, I wouldn't have said that the, the, the goals were my fault you know, at the end of the day it was one of those nights when Villa were far superior at that time to Birmingham City and um, it probably wasn't the best environment for me to go in and make my debut but you know, the, 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 the horrible thing about that night was obviously my family managed to get tickets for the game very quickly 
um, a lot of them were there anyway because it was a derby and um, we managed to get tickets for everybody else but we were four down within 17 minutes um, would you believe and uh, you know so I just wanted the ground to open up and swallow me you know and uh, I think because we were all Blues fans because it was my dream I guess because I'd made that decision as well to sign for Birmingham instead of probably going to more prestigious clubs like Villa were at the time, like Man United and Tottenham and Forest and teams like that. Um, the pressure was on me, yeah, to, to say, right, you know, you've made that decision where you've got to go and do, you know, do some good and go and succeed. And I, I probably, if truth be told, I probably didn't um, sort of get to the levels that was expected of me at that time. You know, I left the national school as the best goalkeeper in England at the age of 17, 18, and I'd proven that, you know, playing for the schoolboys and the youth squad, um, and probably didn't quite, you know, reach the, the heady heights that, that everybody was expecting. Now, you know, whether that was to do with it being my home club, whether it was to do with pressures on the pitch or off the pitch, um, I don't know. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it didn't work for me there, and I ended up leaving and, and dropping down a couple of leagues and, and playing most of my football in my career then at, uh, at you know, at League One and League Two. So, um, you know, being a local club, yeah, probably more pressure, but it was something that I bought on myself, so I've got nobody else but to blame for that. <laughs> uh, apologies uh, for earlier on, that's just my mind going in the direction. Don't worry, mate. Um, don't, don't worry. It's because I live in Carlisle. I have played for Carlisle now, so don't worry about that. Oh, that's why. All right. Well, at least I got uh, my information kind of half right, so that's good. But, uh, we can edit it out, so it's not a problem. Um, just uh, you, you injured, you injured your back on during yeah. uh, one of your in one of the games. What was your kind of yeah. mindset when you kind of dealt with that? And then you injured it again, and there was a kind of sacrifice. Do I continue yeah. or do I not continue? Because it's um, I know you had a young family at that point. So how do you kind of deal with? The first setback and then the second setback. Yeah. Well, you know, again, you know, the injury. I went, I went through a hell of a lot with with both injuries. Uh, to be honest, the first time it happened, totally innocuous. I mean, I was about, I think I was around about twenty seven, something like that, in terms of my age. Um, playing down at Orient for Cardiff, um, about two thirds away through the game, took a goal kick, and you know, inadvertently just. My non-kicking foot just got stuck in the, in the grass. And I ended up... The only way I can describe it, if you've ever seen the film Matrix, when Keanu Reeves sort of leans back at 90 degrees, I, that's the only way I can describe what happened. Because I just literally got my studs caught and I just fell back. But I, I just heard a massive clonk in my back and in my pelvic area. Um, and I just thought that it was a little bit of a hamstring strain or something. So... Uh, like I cleared the ball and then I got up and obviously there was a there was a passage of play but then we lost the ball and the ball was played over the top and suddenly I, I then just made the decision to try and come out of the box and clear my lines like you know through ball and as soon as I pushed my left leg forward to run I got the most excruciating burning sensation all the way down my left leg and into my spine and I literally just fell over um Unfortunately, a defender got to the ball and cleared it before you know an Orient player, and and basically I just had to come. You know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't continue. That there was that much pain, and I remember um, the journey home was horrible because we travelled obviously from London to Cardiff, and I couldn't sit down on the coach, so I literally had to lie on the floor on my stomach all the way from uh, London to Cardiff 
in between the seats, if you can imagine that. Um, so I had very thin pattern. People were having to climb over me, and it was ridiculous. So, but I couldn't, I couldn't sit down. So anyway, we got back to the ground, <coughs> and my wife Tracy didn't drive at the time. She still doesn't anyway. But so literally, my car was there, and uh, for one reason or another, I decided that I was going to get my car and drive it home. As soon as I got in the car, by that time everybody had gone, so I had no other option but to get my car back to, to Caffili where we lived. But I couldn't sit on the seat. So you can imagine I'm driving from Cardiff to Caffili, like in a straight line, with my foot on the accelerator, trying to use the pedals, not putting my backside. So I'm, I'm literally on a diagonal, rather than sitting 90 degrees, I'm diagonally driving the car. The... 12 miles or whatever it is from Cardiff to Caffili and, and managed to get myself home. Um, and, it, and just the pain was, was unbelievable. I've never felt anything like it in my life. And um, just an absolute burning sensation in my back. So, um, you know, obviously the next day it was reported and, and without going into too much detail, um, the club tried to find out what it was. Um, it, it, I, I, I didn't play for like, or we didn't play until the next, for another week. So literally I didn't train, I just rested. Um, it settled a little bit, um, you know, and obviously I tried to do the warm-up for the next game. And, and lo and behold, the next game was the, the Cardiff-Swansea derby at, at, uh, at Ninian Park, which probably wasn't a brilliant thing for me to have to go and play. In. But I, I literally couldn't move. You know, I informed the the, the, um, the management at half time. I was struggling, but we didn't have a sub keeper, so I had to carry on. And literally after that game, I I, I had um, six months off because I just it, it, we, I couldn't play. I went for scans. I went for everything. I was like a pin cushion for five or six months, and nobody could find what the problem was. In the end, I ended up going to my own doctor, who was a rugby specialist, rugby injury specialist who had happened to see similar type um, symptoms in three rugby players who had had back injuries. So literally, he said, I think it's, it's the iliolumbar ligament, which is something I've seen before. It's, it's a ligament that comes off the, the, the spine. Um, and it, what it literally does, if you imagine your, your, your movement of your leg forward and back, and you have a movement in your leg up and down, well, I was told this ligament is the one that affects the movement up and down. And what was happening was I'd, I'd torn it. So literally every time I tried to like drive upwards um, and tried to work at speed, that was what was causing the excruciating pain. So he said, what we're going to do, we're going to inject you. We're going to give you a steroid injection. You won't be able to do anything for two to three weeks. We just need to see if that's the area where you're getting the pain. And if it is, I've got something that we can try so literally they had they had this um this formula that they used which which literally and again the way i can describe it if you imagine a, a piece of chewing gum that, that's pliable and flexible and that's your that's the ligaments literally that the way they work now if you imagine you put a piece of chewing gum in the freezer it becomes solid and you can't stretch it so literally what had happened was from being a pliable piece of chewing gum they then injected me with this sclerosing agent, which literally bonded the ends of the ligaments together that are torn. But it became then that frozen piece of chewing gum. So literally, it wasn't pliable. It was just sealed and it was joined together. 
So any kind of impact, any kind of strain on that could literally just tear it straight apart again. So the, the doctor said to me, look, you might never have another problem, but it might last a week. It might last a month, six months, whatever. So anyway, by that time, um, basically Cardiff had got another goalkeeper in and we were both first team keepers. So I ended up moving. Long story short, went to play for Scarborough. Um, and then about 12, 15 months later, um, similar type thing, took a cross, landed awkwardly, clonk, felt the same thing. And I knew straight away. Um, and I was literally in tears, not because of the pain, but because I knew at that point probably that my career was over. Um, so went off, half-time, told the staff, no, you got to play, we haven't got a sub-keeper. Hobbled through the game. I remember Tracy going bananas because, you know, literally I had to play and, and he was, you know, giving me excruciating pain. So, you know, I went through the pain barrier twice, you know, for football and probably, you know, it cost me my career. Um, obviously, again, as well, you know, the, the, the medicine, the medical side, it wasn't what it is now. So they'd have probably found it in an instance. And because I was playing at that level, they probably... Um, you know, financially, it wasn't worth what it would cost to get me back on the pitch, um, rather than retire me off and, and, and get me sorted out. You know, so um, you know, two massive blows. But ultimately, the second one, I knew that it was game over, and, and I prepared myself for that eventuality should it have happened. And, and lo and behold, it did when I was thirty. You know. Yeah, and as you said, you've kind of get to think: Can I? What am I going to do here? Am I going to continue, or am I going to have to just give up? And yeah. See when you kind of thought this is the end of my career. How did you kind of just deal with that? Do you just go into coaching after that, or do you just thinking I'm gonna get I'm gonna just go into kind of a way of just kind of get my my mindset kind of positive? Well, no, I think uh, you know, and we've already alluded to the fact I had a young family at that time, and you know, when, when I played football, Larry, I never earned massive money. You know, I earned you know a decent living. Um, I'd have played football for nothing. You know, I love the game and. But I, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to do something I loved. And but the, the the point was when when that happened, I hadn't got any coaching qualifications, and the money I earned you know, got us by monthly and, and yearly or whatever. And, and you know, I didn't come out of the game with a massive pension. I think I got a bit of insurance. I got me me, me tax free pension off the PFA. I probably ended up coming out of the game with about twenty five or thirty grand. So that's what my fourteen years as a pro was worth. You know, nowadays they come out. If they had to retire, they'd never have to work again, probably, a lot of players. Um, so I had to think about, well, what next? You know, So we decided to move back to Carlisle. Um, my wife, Trace, is from Carlisle. You know, I'm from Birmingham. Um, and we decided on moving back to Carlisle uh, because you know, I felt I was more connected You know, because my last spell, or I'd had a spell at Carlisle and, and I felt comfortable here and we just wanted to be close to, to sort of family and stuff. So we moved back, but you know, I couldn't work. I couldn't because of my back and the pain I was getting. I, I, I probably I, I didn't work for about six months, but I didn't have any qualifications. There was no football jobs, so literally I, I had to just do what I needed to do. So, you know, you, you know, you asked about sacrifice. So, the the only thing at that time that was available to me was a, a night shift job at, at uh, Morrison's, a supermarket. So I ended up going and stacking shelves for about six months. Um, you know. Because literally, I just had to put food on the table. You know, the, the money that I had from my pension, it wasn't going to last forever. You know, we, we tried to put some aside. But, you know, when you've got a young family and you've got a, 
cost of living and blah 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 it, you know it didn't last long and so I had to go and earn a crust and, and, and that's what I did so it, you know I've gone from being a professional footballer and, and you know being the public eye and, and having that adulation that gratification from fans and blah 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 the next thing you know I'm putting steel toe cap boots on and I'm pushing a trolley down a you know um, you know an aisle in a, in a supermarket at two o'clock in the morning putting stuff on the shelf for people to come and buy the next day you know but I didn't think twice about it because at the end of the day my love for my family outweighed you know what what I was going to have to go through that so with that so I, it didn't embarrass me you know I was very humble about it you know some of the lads that worked at Morrison's were Carl Hall fans who'd watched me on the terraces and you know I'd been chanting my name two or three years before and, and when I walked in the first night I think they thought it was a bit of a joke that I was having them on. You know, what are you doing here? So, you know, they twigged who it was straight away. You know, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm, I'm working with you lads, you know. And um, I think it took them a few days to, to sort of get over that. And uh, But once, once you know, I got to know everybody and I just got on with it, you know. And uh, ultimately, I knew that I wanted to be in football. I knew that to be in football, I was going to have to coach. Um, so I was going to have to get my qualifications. So while I was doing the, the night shift job, I then started taking my qualifications and started building my knowledge up. And, uh, you know, from that point, the, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. And through that, you've kind of been a, a goalkeeping coach across many formats. Can you tell yeah. the listeners the kind of formats that you've worked in and your mindset when it comes to kind of the kind of change or is it the same philosophy throughout? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, obviously I've, the, the first sort of work I got involved with was football, so I started doing some grassroots stuff, you know, got involved with local county FAs, um, really just trying to, to sort of build my knowledge, get working with, with, with uh, youth players, junior players, um, you know, share my experiences with them and, um, you know, slowly but surely I started to build a little bit of reputation um, I think the big break for me was when one of the young goalkeepers that I coached in my goalkeeping school um, was playing for his county and he got spotted on the same day by Man United and Liverpool and uh, both representatives of the clubs then approached the, the lad's family and asked where you know he'd been coached because obviously they were impressed with him and my name came up and, and literally within the space of 24 hours I got a phone call off both clubs um, asking if I'd be interested in going and having a chat with them um, you know about maybe doing some some kind of coaching work for them. So you know, literally, I, I went and had meetings. Um, so ultimately, what what it was about was was like running development centres. So outside the the reach of the club, um, they just wanted to sort of have like a holding bay where they could bring goalkeepers in, know that they get looked after and coached under the club umbrella banner. Um, and then if any of them the you know were of a decent level, then they could get forwarded onto the academy and. Ultimately, you know, I don't know. For some reason, again, I turned Man United down. I guess you know I've done that twice now in my life, and whether I'll live to regret that, I don't know. But I plumped for Liverpool, and uh, I ended up working for Liverpool for for four or five years. You know, both uh, in the academy system, in the international soccer schools system. Um, but that that was kind of the um, sort of progress that I made there. But that's why I'm trying. Why I'm mentioning that role because that. That was the role that gave me the opportunity to get involved with, you know, a format that is very dear to my heart, which is futsal. Um, I was working at Liverpool. The then 
head of futsal, the England futsal, Graham Dell, was looking for a new goalkeeper coach. And he was very good friends with the head um, of, of academy goalkeeper coaching at Liverpool, who at the time was Billy Stewart. So Billy recommended me. Um, I went down to Lillyshaw, met Graham, met the, the group of players, spent a day with them on camp and immediately fell in love with the game. And Graham offered me the job and um, I had it for 10 years. So, um, you know, on the back of the futsal role, again, I kind of got a bit of a reputation having delivered on the FA goalkeeping conferences and, um, you know, travelled you know, up and down the country delivering the futsal message. Uh, I then got, you know, another couple of roles within the FA very, very quickly, quite close back to back. So I ended up uh, being offered the... Um, England CP, cerebral palsy, seven-a-side squad, goalkeeper coaching role. Um, and I later became assistant coach as well on that. And then within a few months of taking that role, I got offered the blind squad um, role, head of goalkeeping. So, um, you know, I found myself working you know, for Liverpool, running my own goalkeeping schools, and then working across three different formats of the game, futsal, um, CP football and, and blind football and those those three formats alone have given me the opportunity to to gain some fantastic experiences, travel the world, you know, I've done Paralympics with the CP squad, you know, I've been around Europe and the world with the futsal squad, you know, World Championship qualifiers, European Championship qualifiers, you know, the futsal give me the chance to go to Barcelona and spend a week with their futsal squad. Um, you know, just so many other things. But also then, you know, on the back of that I got offered um the lead role in the women's game it was a new role um, head of international youth goalkeeping which you know um, I was sort of encouraged to go and, and apply for I've been around the women's game for a couple of years on the back of my other other stuff that I'd done and uh, lo and behold I got offered the role and decided to take it didn't quite fit me I didn't fit it um, you know it, there was there was a restriction around it and uh, you know I wasn't quite comfortable in, in the role and, and I decided to, to sort of uh, give that up after about 15 months I, you know, I had a go at doing it but it was probably the right decision to, to walk away and let somebody else have a go and then uh, dropped back into to blind football and then I've, I've recently taken up the the new role of, of joint uh, head coach of the England women's deaf futsal squad so I'm back in back in futsal again which is fantastic and um, you know again it's just to represent your country as a player fantastic to represent your country as a coach as well on one format the game great but you know I've done it across six different formats you know we say five but I call it six so if you call it football men and women's there's two you know you've got futsal uh, mainstream futsal, you've got your, your blind football, you've got your CP football, you've got your women's deaf futsal. So there, for me, those are six different formats. And, um, you know, you ask the question, um, is the philosophy different? I think the game, the formats, um, they're slightly different. Listen, it involves the round ball, you know, uh, and it involves two goals at each end or a goal at each end and uh, you know obviously the role of the goalkeeper is such that we keep the ball out of the net but obviously each format dictates a different skill set for for the you know the individuals that that um, you know that go in goal so I think my philosophy is my, my personal philosophy is similar across all but I think my game philosophy 
um, you just tweak it and, and 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 become a little bit more diverse around what you do because there are slight differences, you know, in terms of the laws of the game, the rules of the game, and the effect that has on the goalkeeper. So you've got to tweak and change it as and when you need, but it's got to be fit the role of the goalkeeper for that specific format, you know. Yeah, definitely. And as you said, you kind of you lead a lot of the kind of projects and you help out a lot. What see leadership and humility. Um, how key is this when it comes to coaching in life? Yeah, I think you know. Look, and I, I do things the way I do it. You know, I, uh, I've faced challenges in in my coaching career because there's been times when people do things or say things not the way I would, and and, and treat people differently. And I, I am what I am. Uh, I, I do things the way I do them. If people like that, great. If they don't. It's not an issue. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't force myself on anybody. Um, I care about people, um, but like you say, I, you know, I have that that hum- humility side to my empathy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, I'm humble about everything I do. You know, and for me, it's about the people you work. It's not about me. You know, I've had my time. I've had people chanting my name and, and and all that stuff, and that's great. You know, it's nice, but that was just that was a job. You know, I was doing that as a, as, a, as a living and. But I think coaching is, a, is is different. It's it's about sharing and caring, you know. And, and you know, those that have read my book, you, you'll see me, me use that phrase a lot because to me, that's what it is. You know, I I can't take what I have—the knowledge, the experiences, the learnings—I can't take it with me to the grave. So my my outlook on on coaching on life is to share those experiences, that knowledge, that you know, those learnings with as many people as I can. Because ultimately, I know then that the legacy I leave will be one where people could just come and speak to me, and they'll get what they need when they want it. You know, I've never turned anybody down. I've never said to somebody, "I'm not going to share that with you." You know, I don't believe I have, and if I have, forgive me. I, I can't ever remember that. But I, for me, that's what it's about. It's about sharing and caring. It's about you know using what we have to better other people. Uh, and ultimately, I won't change, you know, until, or I never will, you know. So the day I finish coaching, um, I'll still be doing the same thing. And, and for me, that's what it's about. And are there enough like that? Probably not. I think too many get uh, wrapped up in their own self-importance. Um, some believe their own headlines. Some believe that it is about them, not about others. But as I said, I can't legislate for what other people do and the way other people operate. All I can do is make sure that the people I come in contact with have a wonderful experience, they enjoy what they do, and they go away learning something. You know, and that's my philosophy and that's my outlook on, on life and coaching in general. Yeah, and as you said, you like to share information and uh, network. How key is that in the kind of industry of like sport and business and also mindset? Huge. Uh, yeah, and then it comes back to, you know, Really, just being able to connect with people. You know, you you've got to be able to to sort of speak to people one to one. You got to be able to look somebody in the eye and, and know, you know, what what makes them tick, how to unlock them. You know, get a feel for for them. You know, we we meet people for the first time. We don't know their story. We don't know their background. We don't know what trials and tribulations and challenges they come through in life to get where they are. And I think the more um, time we can sit down with somebody and actually get to know them rather than just you know forming an opinion then for me that that's definitely what it's all about so connection 
is huge. And I think what that does, it then helps you um, get a, a, a place in people's hearts. And, and that word soon travels. People know that they can contact you for help. People know they can meet you for guidance and, and the fact that, you know, what you have, you're going to share with them. And that's why the network becomes a little bit easier to form then because people want to be part of what you're doing. And, I, you know, I have no, no issue with that, no shame in that. If, as I said, people want to be part of the network, not a problem. And I've never turned anybody down. Not everybody's going to like the way you do things. And I get, I've got to be honest with you, Laurie, I've had a lot of jealousy in my time as a coach. A lot of people have seen me as a threat because, you know, ultimately, and it's not an egotistical thing, I'm good at what I do because I look after people, because I love people and because I try to make them better people, not just better athletes and players. And a lot of people can't do that. They can only see them as one or the other. They can't see them as both. And I think some people don't like that because they can't manage it. But that's not my fault. I've gone out of my way to create what I am and be what I am. If you apply yourself in the right way, if you find the right way of doing things, you can do it. And it's just purely and simply because some people don't want to find the way. It becomes about them solely and that then becomes the issue. So, you know, if people want to learn anything about that, be humble. You know, show some humility, show empathy. And be prepared to back down sometimes. Be prepared to listen. You know, and I think that's massively important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I learned a lot when I read your book, which was excellent. You know, really, it made me think just... Thank you, I appreciate it. ...of small things that kind of, to help me be a better person, but also be a better coach and help the kind of, the people I work with. But uh, what was the thinking behind that? And was there any problems or... Uh, things you had to deal with to overcome? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the story goes, I, I, I contributed to a book written by a young man called Adam Woodage, um, you know, 12 or 18 months you know, prior to my, my book being published. Um, and you know, Adam, Adam wanted to speak to me. I met Adam at Wembley. You know, I, I agreed to sort of, you know... Um, let him use, you know, what we discussed in his book. It didn't take any 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 kind of financial gain from that. It was just about him getting, you know, a foothold in in the coaching world and getting himself published. And um, you know, on the back of that, Adam said, "Well, look, you know, we've had that much interest in in what you've put in the book. We we probably need to do a standalone one, you know." So, um, you know, I I was a bit uh, sceptical about doing it. Again, I'm not an egotistical type person, and you know, do I want my name on the front of a book? And you know, but it's like I just said to you. At the end of the day, I can't take it with me. So, if I can put something in print that's going to develop somebody and help somebody, then you know, who am I to stop that happening? And Adam was prepared to take up the slack and do most of the work. And you know, literally, it was just about him getting out of me what he needed. And we we didn't know in the beginning. We didn't know what kind of um, way to, to sort of put it put it across did we do it as a coaching resource did we do it as a kind of more of a philosophical philosophical type um, publication and I think we've ended up with 
it's probably 75% around the philosophy and the person and the coach. And then you know, there's a little bit, 25%-ish, around you know, session planning and, 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 and syllabuses and the actual coaching. So I think what, what I've actually done is I've probably killed myself a little bit with the title because people will think it's just about goalkeeping when I don't think it is. I think that's just a small part of what the book is about. I think what I've tried to do, and, and, and I think the way, you know, I, I think Adam constructed it really well. I think it's more like a conversation. And I think what I wanted was for the reader to actually feel like they were in that conversation between Adam and myself. And that, that's the feedback I've been given. It's not just like reading words. People actually are thinking about me and Adam having the conversation when, when they're reading the book, which is fantastic, and that's what we wanted. But it, it is literally about... A little bit about my story, so I think it's you know the, the the aim was to connect me with not just those that know me already, but others that you know that possibly wouldn't have come across me in, in football or futsal world or whatever. Um, and then really just to to sort of give them an idea around how I've built my philosophy, what it entails, you know how I came to making those uh, big decisions in my life, and and then obviously you know working with other people, building relationships, connecting. Um, you know, and all that kind of stuff, some of the stuff we've talked about. But I wanted to just give people ideas of how to, to work. And, I, and for me, it's not just about football people. I think if you're a teacher, I think if you're a business person, I think if, you know, you, you run a company, I, I think you could still read that book. And if, you, if, you, if you're intelligent enough, I think you could really link whatever... I've put in the book there in terms of dealing with people and being with people and and, and, and building a, a life philosophy. I think you could draw, still draw something from the book and it's not just about, you know, the goalkeeping side of it. So perhaps I need to change the title. I don't know. No, no, I thought it was excellent. And it was just to keep it... As I recommend the three or four of my kind of friends, but also kind of business people and also my football kind of yeah. family. But also because of the... It's all, it has such a huge section on how to develop yourself as a person which is the kind of main thing because as yep. you said there's the four cornell model and the, the fa or the which is you know yep. um, but then the psychology part which is the kind of key aspect which a lot of people struggle with but yep. um i know i've taken a lot of your time up tony so no um, it's cool so no um, problem. can you problem. just a final couple of questions say can i what's next yep. for you uh is there any events coming up or you were promoting anything at all <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a busy year, you know. Obviously, I've already you know mentioned I've been to Japan with the uh, with the blind squad, and we're kind of preparing and building towards a massive tournament this summer for us. We've got the World Championships um, in uh, Madrid in June, so you know, obviously, we we went to Germany last August, and uh, we got a, a bronze medal in the European Championships. We probably should have got gold and, and deserved gold, but it didn't quite happen for us. So you know, we're we're, we're trying to sort of at least get into the medal match in the world championships in in june um you know i'm i'm obviously doing a lot of work with them uh, the women's deaf foot cell squad so you know i've been involved a couple of months uh, from october last year and then we went to norway in december and managed to qualify for the european championships uh, which have been held in finland in december this year um so that was that was fantastic because you know there's a uh, probably an expectancy that we weren't going to qualify, but we did. We got the group through, and now we've got a chance to build and, and start to really mould and shape that group. Um, you know, to, to go and have a go at the Euro, Euros in uh, in December in Finland. Um, yeah, I'm doing a lot of consultancy work, so 
doing a lot of stuff with with uh, you know online resource company called GK's Nexus. So we, you know we deliver um, sessions and, and and podcasts and uh, you know theoretical uh, like sort of workshops and things for for the uh, for the membership uh, involved in and around that. Anybody that buys into that, and we, you know, the feedback we've had on that has been very good. Um, also, you know, we've got an ambassadorial role with GK Icon, which is a, you know, a coaching company and a glove company um, around the UK. So I'm enjoying sort of pr- pushing and working with them and promoting them. Um, I've got a big event coming up at the end of June. I've uh, got a dear friend of mine, and I'm really, really excited about this event. You know, we've been planning and, and plotting this for a couple of years now, but I've managed to get who I consider to be the best futsal goalkeeper in the world, Paco Sedano from Barcelona uh, Futsal Club, uh, and he's the Spain number one. Um, he's coming over on June the 30th um, to deliver a workshop alongside myself at the University of Nottingham, and that's going to be an unbelievable event. You know, To get somebody of that calibre um, to come to these shores and, and to deliver his message and you know, for us to see him you know, uh, working on court, and you know, that, that's something that, you know, literally money can't buy um you know so anybody that's interested in goalkeeping or, or futsal or, or you know a combination of those you know that's something that you don't want to miss um and obviously you know we can share details around that if ever you wanted to um and then there's my role at Carlisle united so you know i'm working with the academy uh, in the academy system there with goalkeepers from sort of nine up to about 18 19 um and i'm thoroughly enjoying that so that keeps me connected with the local community gives me plenty to get my teeth into when I'm not on international duty and uh, you know it keeps me active keeps me out of trouble so uh, a lot of stuff coming up yeah even though the summer's coming it's going to be busy um, you know I'm delivering on the uh, national goalkeeping conference in May um, over in the northeast at Slaley Hall so I'm looking forward to that and we're going to be working with some fantastic presenters a dear friend of mine, Eric Steele, John Actabo is going to be there. So there's some really big names coming over and I'm really excited about doing that. So a busy period coming up and, uh, as I say, it keeps me active and, uh, you know, I love what I do. But, you know, ultimately I still enjoy the physical side of coaching and that was probably what, what deterred me from the, the role I had in the women's game in terms of the national role. Probably too much time off the pitch, but now I'm back doing that and I love doing that and I'll continue to do that as long as I can. Um post that you know I want to get to a point when I don't think I can physically do it then I think that's when I'll sort of turn probably to the consultancy side of things and, and just try and share the knowledge uh, you know off the pitch rather than on it so uh, let's see where that goes but that's hopefully a long long way in the future so. no definitely and I'll, we'll link all the, the events uh, you kind of talked yeah. about um, yeah. through the kind of the Twitter page uh, yeah. Just the final question: Where can people uh, kind of buy your book and uh, find information about you and your like your social media? Yeah, yeah. So literally, the book uh, you can still get it on the website, and it's literally the same name as the book. So it's www.amodernapproachtogoalkeeping.com. Um, it is readily available on Amazon as well. So if you you type a modern a modern approach to goalkeeping into Amazon, it will come up. Um, I am on Twitter, so I'm more than happy for people to sort of follow me and keep it on what I'm doing. And my, my Twitter handle is at TEGK1. So it's TEGK1. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but obviously I'm, I'm a little bit selective around oh, who yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I bring in as friends. But I am on LinkedIn as well. Yep. So you can find me on those social sort of formats but the twitter feed is, is a good one i do like uh, you know 
um, sharing what I'm doing on there. Although uh, at times uh, the internet police get on there a little bit and uh, oh, yeah. limit what you can say and do. So I have to be careful a little bit on that. But you know, ultimately, I uh, it's just really just to let people know what I'm doing and where I am. You know. Perfect. Uh, thanks again, Tony. You've really inspired me. And again, if no. anyone you know wants to read your book, I would really recommend it because it just makes you that 1% better, but that 1% better could be every single day to for your life, but also in your coaching. But thanks again. No, pleasure, man. I appreciate that. And uh, as I say, if anybody needs any uh, guidance or help, you know where to find me. So uh, and thank you very much.